0: Hey there! Welcome to another episode of Livewire. I'm your host Luke Burbank. This week we are talking to Jamie Loftus about her podcast, which takes a look at the literary classic Lolita from a feminist perspective. Also, genius comedy person Demi Adige eBay will swing by and explain how he basically breaks the internet every September 21st. Plus, we got music from The War and Treaty. They are a married duo, and Michael, the husband actually learned how to play piano while deployed in Iraq on a piano that was once owned by, wait for it, Saddam Hussein. And we are going to be hearing from you, the listeners, on what your podcast would be about, since every American over the age of 12 is now legally required to have one. So there you have it. That's the plan for this hour. It's going to be a great show. Don't go anywhere. It all gets started right after this. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How you doing? I'm doing great. Are you ready to play another round of station, location, identification, examination?
3: I'm not going to lie. When I woke up this morning, I was like, oh boy, we get to play the game again.
0: (laughs) This is where I'm going to ask you to try to guess a city in America somewhere. This city was where they shot the film A League of Their Own. Mm. And also back in the day... And they also shot some of the exterior shots for the TV show Roseanne in this city.
3: Well, I know the Rockford Peaches are from Rockford, Illinois, and I mm-hmm. know Roseanne's TV show was in a town called Lanford, Illinois, but I don't know if either of those things were shot in the actual places.
0: Well, you know, you're onto something because this is a state that starts with I. It must be but Indiana. Sort of, <laughs> that's exactly right. So now we've narrowed it down. It's Indiana. This also was the town that had the first riverboat casino in Indiana. Valparaiso, Indiana. So close. It's Evansville. Oh, no. Evansville, Indiana, (laughs) where people are listening to us on (gasps) WNIN.
3: That's also very close to New Harmony, Indiana, site of a twice-failed commune where I spent a lot of time and where Willie Nelson likes to park his tour bus. So that is a town and a region so close to my heart. I'm so glad we're on the radio there. Hey, everybody.
0: Yeah, hi, thanks for putting us on, W-N-I-N. Hope you enjoy the show. Speaking of which, should we get to it, Elena? Let's do it. All right, take it away.
3: From PRX, it's LiveWire. This week, comedian and TV writer, Demi Adigeive.
2: That's how TV shows should work to me. You have a beginning and an ending, and you are trying to make the middle parts like a puzzle piece.
3: Plus, comedian and podcaster, Jamie Loftus. You know, Lolita is not an actual person. She is like a construct. With music, by the war and treaty.
4: So I taught myself how to play the piano on Saddam Hussein's piano.
3: I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of LiveWire,
0: Luke
3: Burbank. Hey,
0: thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into the show this week. Uh, We've got a good one in store for you. Uh, Of course, we asked the LiveWire audience a question, as we do each week. This week, the question was, what would your podcast be about? Uh. Since (laughs) I would say the number of people I know that don't have a podcast now Mm -hmm. is a much smaller number than the number of people I know who do have a podcast. Yeah, it's like
3: tattoos. It used to be you only had a few friends that had them, and now there's only one person who's tattoo-free.
0: Yeah, exactly. All right, we're going to have the uh, listener response to that question coming up a little bit later in the show. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is... Good news happening out there in the world. (sighs) Elena, what is the best news that you heard all week?
3: Oh, well, this is about this amazing phenomenon that happens every year, which is the migration of the monarch butterfly in North America. Do you know about these butterflies and what they do?
0: No, not, not very much. So
3: certain species and subspecies of those big, beautiful monarch butterflies travel from places in the Midwest and Northeast of the United States all the way down to Mexico as their migratory pattern. It's phenomenal. And it takes them four generations sometimes of butterfly to do it because there are some... Generations of butterfly that are born at a certain part of the year that only live for about a month. And then there are other long hauler generations that those shorter generations give birth to that can cover larger distances. So it's just this like, um, I know, it's it's amazing. And they all kind of know innately that they have this journey to take. And like most species uh, (laughs) that we love, the monarch has been in decline for the past 20 years. And so a lot of citizen scientists have been breeding monarchs and sending them on their way. So in Orland Park, Illinois, a woman okay. who works at a garden center named Debbie Kostolansky has been breeding monarchs in these little tiny batches for the past five years. She finds their eggs on milkweed plants and nourishes them till they become caterpillars. When they're caterpillars, she cleans their cages twice a day and takes them outside to get fresh air. (laughs) (laughs) And then through the help of this organization called Monarch Watch, she puts these little tiny stickers on them before they quote-unquote leave the nest. And last month, one of her butterflies, ACBM 486, made it all the way down to Ocampo, Mexico. And this is like extremely rare, like maybe one in 100 of the tagged monarch butterflies ever make it down. And think about how few of the overall population of monarchs make it down. So this was just like, this was setting the butterfly world aflutter. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Debbie is thrilled. So um, it's just... That's amazing. Yeah. And the next time you see a monarch butterfly in your yard, just think that it could be part of this amazing multi-generational migrational pattern.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's incredible. I would not have known that. Well, I have a story that I saw this week that also involves amazing things in the animal kingdom. Okay. Uh, this one involves a cat named Forbes. So <laughs> this couple in... Aberdeen, Scotland, Neil and Lucy Henderson Mm -hmm. got this cat, Forbes, back in uh, 2011. And they just, like, loved this kitty. Like, they just had a special bond with him. They said that he was just, like, unique and friendly. Although everybody thinks their cats are unique and friendly, I think. But they really loved Forbes. And then Forbes went missing. (gasps) And they, you know, were really sad about that because they really liked this little kitty named Forbes. Cut to a couple of weeks ago. Where they get a call. So this is 10 years later, Elena. What? That somebody has found Forbes wandering around in a field, looking kind of thin, and that they ran the microchip that had been put in Forbes and figured out that he belonged to Neil and Lucy— so the couple had moved out of Aberdeen, but Forbes was still there. Forbes was like very into living in Aberdeen. So so he sort of stayed in the area they left, but then they had to go back to Aberdeen to get him. Oh my god. And he remembered them. Of course he, he immediately didn't. jumped up and snuggled on them. Oh. This is after an entire decade. And they're just totally overjoyed because they got their cat back after 10 years. I feel like this also gives hope, hopefully not false hope, to everyone who's ever had a a cat go missing. Is that you know maybe Maybe they're still out there. You never know. Forbes was out there for 10 years.
3: I got a cat that was lost. His name was Simon, and eternity wasn't lost. He just got sick of living with us, and he moved two houses down, and the people renamed him Fred. That happens.
0: (laughs) In fact, one of the details in the story is nobody knows what Forbes has been doing for 10 years, but I'm assuming secret family.
3: He was in kitty witness protection. (laughs) That's right.
0: Well, the fact that Forbes has been reunited with his original family is the best news that I've heard all week. All right, let's get our first guest over here to LiveWire. Jamie Loftus is the creator of this really fascinating podcast. It's called Lolita Podcast, uh, which, as the name would indicate, is about the book by Vladimir Nabokov. What makes this podcast series so interesting, though, I think, is the way that it examines the character at the center of the book, Dolores Hayes, which is Lolita's real name, and how this idea and, and even the sort of aesthetic of Dolores Hayes has really impacted a wide range of things in our culture from court cases Mm. to fashion. And and Jamie manages to do all of this from a feminist and also a survivor focused perspective um, on the subject of which we are gonna be talking about the plot of the book Lolita, uh, which could be triggering for some of our listeners. So just want to give you a heads up on that. Anyway, take a listen to this. It is our conversation we had with Jamie Loftus last March about her podcast. Jamie Loftus, welcome to Livewire.
1: Hi, happy to be here.
0: when did you first become aware of the book Lolita? Like, how old were you?
1: Uh, I would have, I would have been about twelve when mm. I first. Yeah, I would have been the age of the protagonist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and how did you become aware that this book existed?
1: Uh, I learned about it from my. Favorite children's author. I used to love Lemony Snicket books. I mean, I still do. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, they they were like the center of my universe when I was 12. <laughs> and he had given this interview in a magazine that I I believe it was like four kids, because I don't know how else I really would have had it. Uh, but it said, like, you know, what is your favorite book of all time? Or like, what would you bring on a desert island? And he said, Lolita. It's the most beautiful book I've ever read, and so I was like, "Oh, well, I gotta, I gotta read
0: this book." <laughs> oh no! <laughs> uh, what was your impression of the book when you were reading it at a kind of somewhat young age?
1: I didn't really understand it. I knew that it was my favorite author's favorite book, and I wanted to be like him. And so I was like, "I like this book." And I remember there were multiple times in the book where I was. I don't know. Like when I was a kid, especially I read all the time, but I always kind of, if something made me feel like, Ooh, I don't like this. I assumed that I was reading it wrong. Mm. There were definitely moments I remember being like, Oh, I don't, I don't like that. But then I was like, Oh, I probably just don't understand. So I just kind of went off of like what the feedback is on the, you know, on the front of the book, it said it was like the best love story ever. So I was like, okay, I guess that I'll, I'll take that at face value.
0: Uh, For for the people who might be listening who have been kind of lying, frankly, that they've read Lolita, like if it's come up at a party or whatever, Mm -hmm. could you do them a solid, Jamie, and just kind of give us like a one or two minute synopsis of the plot of this book?
1: Ooh, uh, Yeah, I've read it too many times at this point. Uh, Lolita is a book about a uh, child sex abuser. He is His name is Humbert Humbert. Uh, he is writing the account uh, from prison where he is waiting on trial for murder, not for being a child sex abuser. And he is essentially recounting his life, but mostly around this one 12-year-old girl, Dolores Hayes, who he uh, groomed and assaulted for two years. She's being... Uh, abused and eventually um, is able to escape his clutches and goes on to um, live on her own but she because she escapes into the clutches of another uh, another pedophile whose clutches she also has to escape and then she goes on to um, live on her own for a couple of years um, she gets married and pregnant at 17 and she dies in childbirth. It's the saddest story ever but at least, Humbert Humbert also dies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you 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 say in the podcast uh, that there's a real distinction in your mind, and this you're consistent with this throughout the episodes, of the difference between Dolores Hayes, which is the character, and then Lolita, which is this kind of construction of Humbert Humbert's mind. Why was that important to you?
1: It was important to me because I think that that is like, at the center of the misunderstanding that um, has been taken and kind of perpetuated in all these different ways of, you know, Lolita is not an actual person. She is like a construct of a child sex abuser. And Dolores Hayes, whose name is, you know, barely really mentioned in the story, is to me, I mean, the child who is going through like the, the worst experience you could possibly imagine. Like one person is real and the other is this constructed character that an abuser has created to convince himself that the abused person is somehow deserving of what's uh, happening
0: to them. You say in the podcast that there's, you know, the the sort of beginning of the book gets left out of a lot of the Mm -hmm. conversation about the book or the film adaptations of this book, or even maybe the musicals, which is a just terrible idea, as you point out. <laughs> you know, Lolita the musical. More more on that in a moment. But but the, the, the beginning of the book sets up the idea, as, as you've mentioned, that that this is a person who is in prison now for something that isn't the, the victimizing of this young woman. But even so, he's in prison, and he's set up as a monster b- by the yes. person who's kind of writing this account of Humbert Humbert. And it seems like that kind of gets lost, and then people— Interpreted as a a a love story or something that seems to put a positive spin on this clearly predatory relationship
1: Yeah, yeah, there is an intro to the book that's written by an external character He's a psychologist who sets up the premise really cleanly in this kind of like overly academic way, but you know, says that this person he considers to be a monster. Um, He had assaulted a young girl. This was a common crime uh, and that he had since committed a murder. And like, here is his, you know, essentially his attempt to win you over. (laughs) But I mean, the first time that I read it, I... I don't even know if I read that section, honestly, or -hmm. if I did, it went right over my head. So if you don't understand how critical it is to read the intro, you can really kind of set yourself up for failure in the reading Mm -hmm. of the book. And then it's also just never mentioned in any of the major adaptations. So especially with the adaptations, you just are not given the tools you need to understand what's going on.
0: This is LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're chatting with Jamie Loftus about her Lolita podcast, uh, but we have to take a quick break. Stay with us, though, because we've got much more with Jamie in a minute. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than
3: seasonal allergies.
0: Yeah, if you are not yet a member of LiveWire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at LiveWire, Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of i probably a 501c3 they don't let me near any of the paperwork Mm -hmm. or bookkeeping and it's really better that way point is we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members and we would love it if you could join us in that right now plus there are all kinds of sweet perks including uh special discounted tickets to live recordings on-air shout outs exclusive content What we're Mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, We are playing a conversation that we had with the podcaster, Jamie Loftus, about her Lolita podcast which takes a deep dive into the book, Lolita, and also its controversial legacy. Uh, We recorded this back in March. Let's jump back into things. Let's talk about the Tumblr uh, episode a little bit. So there, you know, more recently, you have this kind of rise of what you describe as being kind of like the Lolita aesthetic. A lot of it is surrounding Mm -hmm. the 1997 film film version of Lolita yes. and the pop singer Lana Del Rey because of some of her music and her vibe is, is cited a lot in this. First of all, can you just tell us about that world a little bit?
1: Yeah, this is as far as I can tell, this is uh, different versions of this online community have existed since the early 2000s. So kind of just like even before there was Tumblr, these um, nymphet communities would exist and there's an amazing essay about this called Lolita in the Afterlife. Um, mm. it's by Kate Elizabeth Russell, and she was a part of one of these early 2000 s um groups and kind of takes you through that experience. But um it starts as kind of a message board for mostly young girls who are fans of the book and had kind of idolized the relationship in a pretty unhealthy way. That remains consistent, but the tone of the conversation, Changes pretty significantly as the years go on. Where uh, Lana Del Rey, I feel like, you know, her popularity and music, and she very much embodied this aesthetic and referenced the book quite a bit. So I feel like that gave this community a big resurgence Mm. and then it like really came to life on tumblr but then there's people who are hyper aware of what the book is actually about and understand and are constantly sort of adding these qualifiers and disclaimers of like i'm not glorifying this relationship but i enjoyed the book Mm -hmm. and i like the clothes and it's just like i don't know like any online Mm -hmm. teen community they're just trying to like Navigate yeah, it yeah. and navigate it in a and as safe a community um, as is possible.
3: I really wish that when I read the book, I read it once by myself in an ill advised like teenage capacity, and then once like freshman or sophomore year mm-hmm. in college in like a literature the nineteen fifties class. I wish I would have had a podcast. You know, not Mm. a book club, not a study guide, because it's such a big issue, this intersection of art and trauma and the way that people have dealt with it for 70 years. I Mm. would have been able to feel Mm. more confident about, like, kind of forming my own relationship with the book rather than either, like you said, like condemning myself for not getting something or not really having any place to sort of go with actual opinions that I was developing about the book. Why couldn't they have invented podcasts
0: earlier?
1: (laughs) It just went, we had the technology. And,
0: and can can we agree that uh, who is the viper who likes them post diaper is maybe the Ooh. worst line ever in a musical, which is of from course. a musical about Lolita. Why do people? Why did people feel that this would work as a stage production?
1: It's, I mean, that's like the the worst, most egregious example. I just am like, how. How I don't know, I, it made me you know grateful to, to not be around in 1971 because it just <laughs> I was like, if that if you could just get millions of dollars to do whatever that is, <laughs> that's that's a dark timeline. Um. <laughs> yeah, that the problem with that song too is that it's very catchy, and so I have mm-hmm. listeners who are like contacting me all the time to be like, "It is a it is a vile lyric that I can't <laughs> stop hearing in my head." Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I was texting with our producers before this interview, and I said, "You can't unhear it because mm-hmm. it's really, yeah. <laughs> it's really there." Um, one of the things also that I, I like very much about this this Lolita podcast is I don't feel like you, as the creator of it, have a particular outcome that you're looking for from the listening experience? Would that be true? In other words, like, are you kind of open for everyone who listens to this forming their own opinion? Or is there something you're hoping people might take away from this?
1: Um, I mean, I I absolutely want everyone to, you know, especially... With a piece of art that is this loaded, my goal is never to tell you how to feel about it. What I hope, um after listening to the show, that there's no ambiguity about for people is what the core of this mm-hmm. story is about. And not just that, but why are there still so many people <laughs> that, that seem to, you know, go with this completely false narrative mm-hmm. or refuse to interact with it when, you know, this issue in particular, I feel like, is just not discussed in a healthier productive way, um, at all. And I and I hope that you know this show can at least make it clear that this is a conversation that should be had and that a misinterpretation, no matter how well done the, the work is, and this book is like beautifully done in terms of how yeah. it's written, but I don't think that it's just misunderstood and misrepresented because the writing is good. I think it's also like this particular issue, people just don't understand Mm -hmm. and don't know how to receive and have a conversation Mm -hmm. about it.
0: Mm. Well, it's a really amazing uh, piece of work that that you and your team created. Uh, It's the Lolita podcast. Uh, Jamie Loftus, thanks for coming on the LiveWire House Mm -hmm. Party. Thanks so much for having me. That was Jamie Loftus, recorded in March of this year. Uh, In addition to her Lolita podcast, uh, Jamie is doing a lot of things, it turns out. She's an Emmy-winning TV writer, also a stand-up comedian. She has a short podcast series uh, that's really great called My Year in Mensa. And (laughs) you're going to love this, Elena. Mm. Her latest podcast is called Cast, and it looks at the comic strip character,
3: Kathy. (gasps) I got to go.
0: I'll just handle the rest of the show without you because I feel like that podcast was designed for you. Uh, You can follow all of the things that Jamie Loftus is up to at her website, which is JamieLoftus.xyz. Hey, special thanks this episode to Roger and Jennifer Brown of Scapoose, Oregon. Roger and Jennifer are part of the LiveWire member community, and they generously support our show with a donation each month. And we really appreciate it because it's how we're able to do the show. So a huge thanks to Roger and Jennifer for keeping LiveWire going. This is LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Of course, we like to ask the LiveWire listeners a question each week. And (laughs) because we were talking to Jamie Loftus about all her podcast projects, we asked the LiveWire audience, what would your podcast be about? And uh, folks sent in their responses. Elena has been collecting those up. What are people saying their podcast would be about?
3: Luke, I would listen to all of these, I have to say. (laughs) The first one I would listen to is Kate's. Kate is pitching a podcast that interviews famous former roommates like Al Gore and Tommy Lee Jones or maybe another one with Connie Britton and Kristen Gillibrand. Whoa. Yes. You could do a seance and have uh, James Baldwin and Marlon Brando because they were roommates back in the day.
0: (laughs) That's such a good idea for a show. I've actually interviewed a roommate of a famous person. Um, There's a writer named Craig Mazin. He's a screenwriter. I think he wrote The Hangover 2, among other things. And he- was roommates with Ted Cruz oh, no. at Harvard, the <laughs> senator from Texas, and um, without getting political, let's just say Craig's got some stories.
5: Okay,
3: okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. What's another podcast that one of our listeners would host?
3: Ah, uh, Alicia wants to host a podcast about celebrity pet gossip. <laughs> what? Like I follow, and also yes,
0: I would listen to this. Yes,
3: totally. Like I follow a lot of celebrity. Animals on Instagram. My favorite is Justin Theroux's Pitbull. I think her name is Kuma and she like he he like plates a meal for her every night and sometimes a little she puts her in a little dinner jacket and they eat at a at like a a set table together (laughs) during the pandemic.
0: (laughs) But so this would be gossip about the celebrity pets. So it'd be like what celebrity pets are beefing right now? Who's clapping? You know, who's who's ferret is clapping back at someone's cockatiel kind of thing? Yeah.
3: And maybe Kuma the Pipple is writing a tell-all memoir about how she doesn't want to sit at the table with Justin Theroux anymore.
0: (laughs) Again, a great idea for a podcast. Okay, one more before we get to our next guest.
3: This one is from Super Kelly Fregile Mystic (laughs) Alyeskadocious.
0: That's a heck of a Twitter handle.
3: Let's just call this person Kelly. Kelly wants to host a podcast about the difference between our Gen X childhoods and our post-2000s parenting. So Kelly says, I roller skated the streets of L.A. at age eight, but now I have a panic attack letting my youngest walk a block and a half to school at age 12. It
0: can't be only me. I think back on the things that I was allowed to do when I was growing up in the 80s and just the amount of time my parents had no earthly idea where I was Mm -hmm. and there were no cell phones. I mean – I just was in the wind for 12 hours every day in the summer, and no one was tracking my whereabouts. You're
3: a little vagabond.
0: (laughs) I was. All right. Thanks to everybody who sent in their podcast ideas. Those are legitimately good shows that I would listen to. Uh, We have another listener question for next week's show that we'll tell you about at the end of this week's program. All right, let's get our next guest over here. Demi Adige eBay is a writer, comedian, and performer who first found an audience on Vine, creating comedy under the name Electro Lemon. Uh, Then he took his comedy music clips to Twitter and YouTube and to some very popular podcasts. He's the co-host of Gilmore Guys and also Punch Up The Jam. He's written for The Good Place on NBC and also these days is writing on The Amber Ruffin Show on Peacock. This is a conversation we recorded with Demi back in 2020. Take a listen to this. Demi eBay, welcome to LiveWire. Hello, thank you for having me. Woohoo! Where are uh, you joining us from right now? I'm joining
2: you from Los Feliz in Los Angeles, California.
0: Um, you were born in London and grew up mostly in Dallas. That's correct. Uh, what What kind of what kind of kid were you? Were you really comedy obsessed, music obsessed? Like, what were you into? I was not music obsessed at
2: all. Uh, I I was kind not comedy obsessed. Really, I feel like I got into comedy mostly as a uh, a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. In a large <laughs> way, just being like, oh, I'm I I stand out too much from everyone. I need a, a thing to make myself uh likable and then i also got really into the simpsons and was like the simpsons is everything to me which i think is uh one of the reasons i got really into comedy writing and i think a lot of the reasons a lot of people my age got into comedy writing just being like well can we do that
5: Mm -hmm. uh
2: but yeah I, i it's weird i i don't have any history of musicality or anything whatsoever i just kind of was like really this seems fun yeah
0: That's actually difficult to hear because you seem really good at it. And I assume that like, you know, your parents were musicians or you were like classically trained. This is just yet another thing that you've picked up a lot. Like along with painting, (laughs) I I saw that GQ article that you just decided to teach yourself how to paint during quarantine. Yeah, well, painting is different because it's like
2: you can just make mistakes and paint over it and it looks like you're just doing it so confidently and you can just paint Mm. in layers and it's, it's very fun if you're able to take the time. But with music, it's also like, I think I'm a good tinkerer. I think I'm a good mimic of things. And so with music, it's mostly like, it's not even just like, oh, I can play these instruments as much as it is just like, I have learned how to compose digitally. And I think uh, a lot of that is just being isolated as a kid and just like really teaching myself how to use different computer tools. But also having a vague interest in music. Uh, I remember in fourth grade, I uh, spent a lot of my lunches and recesses, just being like, uh, I'm not going to go to lunch. I'm just going to go sit in the music room and tinker on the piano, just trying to learn how to play specifically the entertainer. Uh, and then <laughs> the, pass- the <laughs> Scott Joplin. <number>. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, I I feel like I can get this down. And when I did, it was like, <laughs> you'd think I'd
0: move on to another song. And it's like, no, I'm just going to get really good at this one song. <laughs> We're talking to Demi Adigebe, uh, writer and comedian, and I think highly proficient musician Hmm. um, who makes all kinds of – cool, interesting things on, on the internet, uh, including these videos, uh, that you've been putting out for like the last five years around the 21st of September yeah. where it's, they're getting more elaborate each year. We're just like a really involved dance number with other people coming into the sort of frame. It looks like it's all kind of one shot and it's to this like edited version of the song September by earth, wind and fire. So that it just keeps going into the 21st night of September part. Like, how did that start for you?
2: So the very first time it happened, I think was 2016. And uh, my roommate at the time, my friend Ben, had seen on Twitter that people were talking about, oh, it's the 21st night of September, like in that song. And I was just sort of like, oh, okay. And he mentioned it to me. And I was like, it'd be very funny if the song just said it was the 21st night of September <laughs> and didn't mention anything else. And I was like, well, I do a little like music uh, like mix sort of edit things. Uh, I, I I'm gonna do it myself, and I did it, and I managed to do it pretty quickly. And I was like, okay, what do I do with this though? So I went quickly into my room, and like I found a uh, like a just a blank gray shirt that I had, and I had a bunch of stencils and some paint, and I just made a <laughs> shirt that said September 21st. That's today on the back, and I just like <laughs> did a little dance to it, and so I was mm-hmm. like, all right, I'll just post it, and then it uh, it was a lot more of a hit than I expected, and people just started mentioning it to me more uh, as the next September 21st approached. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll do something else again. And then I was like, how do I up it? And I just kind of uh, was like, well, I've got some things I can put up around the house and maybe I'll do this and do this other thing. And I just got really into the production side of just making this video more of a thing. And then from the point I did a second video, it was just like, everyone's like, so you're going to do this every year, right? And I was like, oh, oh, uh, I, I guess
3: I have to. Um, And here we are. And now they're like big budget musicals. Like they have like (laughs) confetti and backup singers. And uh, I don't want to
0: spoil it.
2: Mariachis. Yeah, Yeah, they've (laughs) they've gone way out of hand. It's starting to feel more and more like uh, actual directing and actual like production. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Now, how do I up that even further? Because it feels like pulling off the trick is uh, the most fun part about it. So I'm like, all right, well, I, (laughs) I I need to just figure out how to pull out a bigger trick. Right. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Right. Uh, I'm kind of curious how your jokes, or your ideas tend to come about for you. I'm thinking of the thing that's pinned at the top of your Twitter page right now. And it's like you in a bathroom and you're just wearing kind of like a cropped shirt and some shorts and the song Tiny Dancer by Elton John is playing and you're <laughs> scrolling up. And what we realize is that you have written on the wall above the the doorframe, right as he's getting into the Hold Me Close Tiny Dancer part, it's you've written, homey Close, so tiny, damn son and and it it's you exa- it's exactly like that's what Elton John is singing that has two and a half million views like how where does that even start in your brain as an idea <laughs> I I'm even trying to remember how that happened I think it was that
2: uh I was listening to the song and uh I know a lot of people have like misheard lyrics of like hold me closer Tony Danza for that mm-hmm, song yeah. and I was just sort of like I feel like it's like half a step away from some other thing. And I just kept being like, homie oh, close, so tiny, just like making it more abstract as I was singing it. And as I was saying that, I think I stumbled on homie close, so tiny, damn, damn. So, and I was like, okay, that <laughs> kind of sounds like this other thing. And so I was just like, how do I make this uh, joke visible?
0: Right. Uh, because
2: I, I was like, it's not as fun to just tweet that it sounds like this. I was like, how does it make this joke visible? So I was like, well, I have this, Tiny shirt, and I can just wear shorts and like just tiny clothes, and I just write it (laughs) on the mirror and I'll just like reveal it as it's playing. And it felt just like natural.
0: Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking to Demi Adigi Ebay, writer and comedian. Um, You were one of the writers on The Good Place, which I think is just one of the best TV shows. In, in a long, long time, just the comedy is so high on it, but also the kind of larger philosophical questions about humans and religion and why we do what we do. Did you feel like when, when you were writing there, did it feel in the writer's room like, oh, we're trying to make something that's like extra special as opposed to just making a sitcom?
2: It definitely felt uh, heightened. It was definitely trying to be like, well, we're making a sitcom, but we don't want it to just be a sitcom. We want it to be like something special. And I think uh, the serialized nature of that first season was uh, something that... I was not expecting even when I took the job to be perfectly honest, when I accepted the job, I didn't know what the show was. And I was just sort of like, I mean, it's Mike. Sure. It's the crew from parks and rec. I will take this job, whatever it is. It was my favorite show on TV. And I was like, I I, I can't believe these people are going to be my coworkers. And then, uh, on that first day, uh, I walked in and they were talking about like character relationships and they had all these charts on the wall. And I was just sort of like, I don't know what we're talking about. And then he pulled (laughs) me into his office and was just sort of like, all right, let me explain what this show is. And then he told me about the premise and I was like, oh, that's cool. And then he told me about the ending and I was like, oh, okay, that's very cool. (laughs) It felt so like, yeah, that's how TV shows should work to me, where it's like you have a beginning and an ending and you are trying to make uh, mm-hmm. The middle part's like a puzzle piece, uh, mm. but also they're not sacrificing jokes to do this and mm-hmm. the nature of the world is also uh, means that our jokes can be a lot crazier than uh, I think the average sitcom can be, which is very fun because it was like writing a live action cartoon that was also trying to make some serious points about death and uh, goodness. and It's deep. Yeah, that first season uh, was all based on uh, this French play, No Exit, which reading that was sort of like, uh, just very helpful in trying to figure out what Mike was trying to do with the the show. And then I wasn't in the future seasons, but I know that they actually had like, philosophers talk to them over Zoom and like do lectures mm. about uh, different elements. And I think that you can tell from the way that the future seasons progressed that they were getting more into the philosophy of it and just being like, well, we can't just keep this going as like, uh, a joke bucket without sort of exploring further the nature of uh the afterlife and so i think that they definitely lean more into it in a way that i am just so impressed with and was just so
0: delighted to watch um you're now uh writing for this the new Amber Ruffin show Woo-hoo. which is uh, on Peacock what are you what are you all doing there what are you guys trying to create
2: oh man it's it's so fun it's a late night show uh that is essentially just comedy and uh like monologues and bits and it's like we don't really have any guests uh it's produced under the veil of covid so we had to figure out what that means and it's really just sort of like a late night show that just gets to be all the fun uh but still tries to tackle uh heavy issues uh our writers room is entirely black predominantly wow. queer uh it's very interesting to be in a room like this and to speak to the voice of someone like Amber. She's at this intersection of uh, like blackness and being a woman where there are so many shows that really can't tackle either of those things so head on because it's like hosted by a white man. Or mm-hmm. it's just on a network where they're like, just keep it light and whatnot. And so getting to be on like a, essentially a premium network where it's like you get a lot more leeway with the things that you get to do. And also getting to tackle serious issues head on is very uh, fun and uh, allows us to go places that I didn't think I'd ever get to go on a show like this. And also everyone is just so funny and wonderful. And Amber is the best. I've been such a fan of hers for years. Uh, so this was a dream when she was like, I want you to work on the show. And it's just been so lovely. The only downside is I'm sitting in my room as I write and not in New York with them all. And I'm just like, oh, I would love to just be in there with you guys yeah. <laughs> and pitch all my bad ideas in person.
0: Well, we'll uh, turn you loose from this uh, interminable Zoom call, Demi, <laughs> but we appreciate you making the time today to be on the Live Wire house party. Of course. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for talking with me. That was Demi eBay right here on Livewire, a couple of uh, updates on Demi's work. The uh, TV show he writes for, The Amber Ruffin Show, has started its second season. And, of course, we're still sort of in the afterglow of September 21st. Uh, So if you have not yet, you need to go check out the latest video that he did to commemorate that uh, august day. And I have to say, it somehow puts all of the previous videos to shame, and I don't even know how that's possible because... They're all pretty amazing. Anyway, check them out on Demi's Twitter account or over on YouTube. All right. Our musical guests this week are a husband and wife duo that Rolling Stone calls one of Nashville's most thrilling acts. Michael Trotter learned to play piano during his military service in Iraq as a means of coping with the trauma that he was experiencing there. Um, After he returned home, he started performing at music festivals, uh, including the music festival where he met his wife and fellow musician, Tanya. Um, They got married, they started playing music together as The War and Treaty, and they've collaborated with the likes of Emmylou Harris, they've toured with Al Green, and performed at the 2020 Grammys. They joined us on Livewire in September of 2020 to talk about their creative process. Take a listen to this. It's The War and Treaty. Tanya and Michael, welcome to the show.
5: Hey. Hey, how are you? (laughs)
0: Um, Michael, I know that you've told this story endless numbers of times, but it is fascinating. And for the listeners to our show that haven't heard it, the story behind how you actually learned how to play piano is really something. Could you kind of share that with us?
4: Yeah. Um, They looked at me when I got into Iraq and realized that I uh, was the weakest link. I was one of the soldiers out of 973 at the time who absolutely did not want to be in Iraq.
0: Wow.
4: I didn't want to be there fighting. I didn't want to do anything. I wasn't patriotic. I'm like, what in the heck have I done? I've screwed my life up. What was me? And in order to calm me down, they read in my file that I am a music freak, that I love music. And it just so happens that one of the palaces that we bombed happened to be Saddam's son. Mm-hmm. But it was inherited. Mm-hmm. So it belonged to Saddam. Mm-hmm. But um Saddam had this piano in the basement. It was an upright black piano. And um I went down there and, and they told me, Hey, on your off time, whenever you feel worried and afraid, come down here and find home. So I taught myself how to play the piano on Saddam Hussein's piano.
0: Wow. Um and, and and Tanya, I know that the the music that that Michael's created and that you've created together, uh, a lot's been talked about about the emotional journey for Michael with PTSD and, and and things like that. For you though, I'm wondering, what's the emotional component of making music with your husband as as the War and Treaty?
6: Really, just being vulnerable
0: mm-hmm. and
6: being able to tap into the deeper levels of myself and the deeper levels of the lyrical content that we come up with um, because you know, I think we all at some point get sad or, you know, have been slightly depressed or, mm-hmm. you know, but it's very different when you're dealing with a, a combat veteran who deals with combat PTSD. You know, mm-hmm. there's a level of compassion that you have to have and you have to go deeper in yourself to find that, you know, it's been a great journey for me, a learning journey for me as well uh, to learn myself to learn the deepest levels of myself and to learn Michael as we go along with these songs. And it's just amazing to me how many songs he can come up with and how much of the music that we make together is therapy, not just for him, but for me as well.
0: This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are sharing a conversation with the music duo The War and Treaty. Uh, We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we are going to hear a song as well as the very moving story uh, about where it came from. So stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl gray. Use the code livewire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Live Wire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, before we uh, jump back into our interview with the musical duo, The War and Treaty, we want to give you a heads up. The conversation that you're about to hear does discuss the effects of PTSD, uh, including suicidal thoughts. So we wanted to make everybody aware of that. All right. Let's get back to our chat with The War and Treaty. You're going to play a song for us. What are we going to hear? Well,
4: um we're gonna actually play a song called Five More Minutes.
0: There's a story behind this song, as there seems to be for all yeah. of your music, right? What what's what's the story on this one?
4: You know, and it's so it's so weird because I'm starting to see a pattern here, and every story is sad. But it's okay. <laughs> you know, that's why we wanna <laughs> that's why we wanna yeah. liven things up a tad. But no, there is a uh, a story. In two thousand and seventeen, I was done with failure. I was ready to to end my life by suicide and mm-hmm. uh I wasn't thinking about the state it would leave my wife and son in. I was just thinking about uh, how they could financially get some sort of break. Mm. And that's the thing I haven't I haven't explained to other interviewers. But I would say, you know, life insurance money. I mean, mm-hmm. I had tried everything as a male, as a man and as a husband and a father. And I just kept getting slapped in the face, mm. door shut. Mm-hmm. And I was tired. So, somehow, love snitched on me and told my wife that, hey, this idiot over here is planning to do something kind of crazy that would alter this family. And my wife then notified the Albion Police Department, a small town in Albion, Michigan. And they came to my home, and a uh, wife let them in, and I was sitting on the stairs, and she walked over to me, uh, and I had tears in my eyes, I was flooded, and she got... On her knees in between my legs and grabbed me by my face and said, honey, I know you've got this idea in your head of when you want to do this. I know you're tired, but I need five more minutes to love you. Mm. Please, just five more minutes. She would say, stay with me. Don't leave just yet. Just stay with me. Five more minutes. That's all I need. And the police they were like, come on, Michael, listen to her, man. Five minutes, you know, and I feel it's important for our for the listeners and our fan base and y'alls to to know um, another side of of our men and women that serve, especially uh, in the police department, especially in our country, given the current climate. Uh, not all are are the same. Uh, these police officers, uh, they weren't just trying to end this situation. They really believed in my wife's love for me. And they really believed in uh, who I was to the community. Mm. And they really put it out there. Come on, Michael, man, we need you. You know, which reminds me of that quote Dr. King gave, judge not by the color of the skin, but judge by the contents of the heart. And apparently the contents of my heart was being judged at that moment.
5: Mm.
4: So I looked at my wife's eyes and after her pleading and asking me for five more minutes, Love then snitched on her and told me that uh, she needed me, and my son needs me, and I need Mm. to be here. And I gave her five minutes, and today, we're still in those five minutes.
0: Yes. Wow. Let's hear that song then. Uh, This is The War and Treaty. Thank you, everybody. and five more minutes. And Treaty. <laughs> Michael and Tanya Trotter. Thank you so much
6: oh, oh. For,
0: for coming on the show and telling your story and sharing that music with us. Thank, thank you. you for having thank us. Y'all. That was the War and Treaty. Woo-hoo! We recorded that back in September of 2020. Their latest album is Heart's Town. Um, they just wrapped up a tour opening for John Legend, wow. which is very cool. And then They got a picture of their son on Instagram. Their son is named Legend (laughs) because they named him after John Legend. I think that was after they toured with him. Oh, yeah? That would be actually a real commitment if you just really wanted to open for John Legend. (laughs) You were like, we're naming the children after you. Um, They are actually still out touring, and you can find the dates when they will be in a town near you at thewarandtreaty.com. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show It's gonna be a biggie. We have actor Nick Offerman from Parks and Rec talking about his new book, Where the Deer and the Antelope Play, which just sounds like the most Nick Offerman title for a book. (laughs) You can just hear his voice saying that. Um, Plus, comedian Phoebe Robinson will be back. She's one of our favorites, and she has a new book out as well. Please don't sit on my bed in your outside clothes. (laughs) Oh,
3: Alright, <laughs> to my solid say that. book titles.
0: <laughs> As always, we're going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show?
3: What's a household rule that you struggle to enforce? <laughs> <laughs> All of them. Mine is no breakfast martinis. <laughs>
0: Explains a lot about Livewire, folks. So, if you have an answer to that question about a household rule you struggle to enforce, you can hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We are at Livewire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Demi Adigi eBay, Jamie Loftus, and The War and Treaty. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines.
3: Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer.
0: Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. LiveWire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Roger and Jennifer Brown of Scapoose, Oregon. For more information, it's my favorite city to say Mm -hmm. on the show, Scapoose, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.